0: So as Peter mentioned earlier, we've recently started a new series and it's called Ignite. And it's thinking about the topic of revival. Now revival is a kind of Christian-y word uh, that you might not be familiar with unless you've been a Christian for some time. Uh, A revival is basically a season of time where God works in a special way in his church and his people. Kind of God doing what he normally does, but it's like the fast forward button has been pressed. So people are especially uh, aware of their sin, especially... Um, wanting to turn to God and people are coming to Jesus and people are getting fired up and there's a season either in a particular church or a group of churches or a a region where it just seems that God is particularly at work. So the way that we're doing this series is by thinking about revival through looking at revivals in history, not in recent history in our culture, but in ancient history in the nation of Israel through the book of 2 Chronicles. Uh, you might say, well, why do a series about revival? What's the point? Why should we even look at this topic? Um, The reality is that what the world needs most is a church on fire. And that's why we're looking at this topic, because that's what the world needs most. And historically, whenever God's people have been set on fire by him and there has been a revival, amazing kind of social things have happened in the wake of the church flourishing and and growing and and being strengthened. So you look at, um, for instance, America. And, and, the, and Britain, 1730s, 40s, the Great Awakening and the revival over here with the, the Methodist revival. All kinds of things happened. Hospitals, orphanages, social care sprung up because the church was flourishing. It's happened throughout history. When the church is strong, everyone benefits. What the world needs most is a church set on fire. And so our prayer is as we do this series, as we look at these historic revivals in the Old Testament, and we get a taste of what God can do and what he has done, and his heart, in wanting to lean in, and wanting to give, and wanting to reveal himself, and wanting to work, that God will stir up in us a season of revival. Individuals, and who knows what else he could do, as we as a church get fired up for him. So that's our prayer. That's why we're doing this series. Uh, The last two weeks, we've uh, looked at Solomon. So this is the third week I mentioned. We've had two weeks looking at Solomon, who was one of the greatest kings of Israel. He was the guy who kind of established the kingdom. He got the temple built, and we looked um, over the last two weeks at Solomon's prayer as he dedicated the temple that he built for God, and then God's answer to that prayer. Now, before we dive in to today's topic, today's passage, I want to just highlight something that Peter mentioned last time he preached in this series two weeks ago. It's just one verse. I'll read it out to you. Um, it's in two Chronicles, Chronicles, chapter seven, and I want to just highlight this verse before we go any further, um, for two reasons. The first reason I want to highlight this verse is because it's realistic about our sin. And that's really good news. And the second reason is because it kind of sets up the rest of our series in a way that I'll explain. So here it is. Here's the verse. 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14 says this. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin And heal their land. It's probably the most famous verse in 2 Chronicles. You may be familiar with the verse if you've been around churches for a while. I mentioned it's realistic about sin. And that's why I think it's a good verse for us to sort of bounce off. Because we'll be coming back to that later on. God speaks this promise just after he said, when you sin, when you mess up, when you fall short, when you break my law, and then I send the judgment that I've said I will send, then if you pray, if you turn, if you humble yourselves, I'll hear and I'll forgive And that's really good news because we mess up all the time, don't we? We're constantly messing up, all the time. We're constantly saying things we don't want to say. We're constantly hurting people we don't want to hurt. We're constantly putting our foot in it. I know I am. I I feel this tension all the time. I'm not doing what I want to do. I'm doing what I don't want to do. We always mess up, all of us. And that's why it's really encouraging to start here. God's realistic about our sin. Even better than that, he wants to forgive. He's waiting to forgive. And that will become important, as I say, later on. The second reason I mentioned it's kind of the key verse for our rest of our series. So, what you've got here are four commands that God gives to his people. He says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, number one, and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, four things, I'll turn and heal their land. And what the writer of two chronicles actually does, he takes that as a kind of pattern for the rest of the book. And he, he chronicles five major revivals that we're going to look at over the next five weeks and the rest of our series. Well, six weeks, actually. Um, and, no, sorry. Anyway, scratch that. Uh, we're going to look at some revivals over the next few weeks. And what he does is, he takes each of those four things and, and highlights how the king, under whom the revival happened, did that thing. So you've got, today, we'll see about Rehoboam humbling himself. You've got the next guy, Asa, who, who prays. And then king after king does one of these, these four items, And it's a kind of a program for the book. Actually, 15 of the chapters in Chronicles, the 36 chapters, are taken up with those five revivals. It's a big deal for the chronicler. That's why we're looking at this series. We're looking at revivals in the book of Chronicles because we want to see, as God works among his people, what he does, how he does it, and what we can learn from that about how we can respond to him in our lives now. So, I mentioned today we're looking at a character called Rehoboam. Um, This is the guy who we might identify with because Rehoboam messes up, and he messes up big. I don't know if you've messed up big in your life. Maybe you have. Maybe you've done something that you really regret, that had really serious consequences, more than just the every day I've hurt someone and, and, and they're, they're wounded by it. It's kind of big, big stuff. Well, rearbone messes up big. Now, when I mess up, I'm kind of an analytical thinker. I like to ask myself a couple of questions. I tend to ask myself, whoa, what happened? What, what happened there? Why did that happen? Why did I respond to that? Why, why did I hurt that person? And then how can I respond now? What can I do about it? There's the why, and there's the what next. And what we're going to see in this passage as we look at Bohm's life is that we get the answers to both those questions. Okay? So as Bohm messes up in a big way, we're going to see under the bonnet why he messes up. That's really important. That's, we're going to learn about why we mess up. And then we're going to see how to respond when we do mess up. And we're going to learn from Bohm's response. Okay. So we'll look at Rehoboam's life, we'll look under the bonnet, and we'll see how we can respond when we make a mess of things, as we often do. So, if you've got a Bible, please turn to page 366. 366, and we're in 2 Chronicles chapter 10. Just before we dive into 2 Chronicles 10, um, a reminder of the context where we've come from. If you have a look at, at verse 31, the last verse of the previous chapter, um, we read that Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. That's where we're jumping into this story. Now, when you read the names David and Solomon, that should get us excited as readers of the Old Testament because David and Solomon were people that God gave his promises to. They were the people that, under whom it seemed the kingdom was getting established and God was starting to fulfill his promises to Israel. And so we read Rehoboam, his dad was Solomon, and his granddad was David, and we should get excited. We've got high hopes For this guy. So let's see what happens. Chapter 10 and verse 1. Rehoboam went to Shechem. For all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it. For he was in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. Then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. Just to pause to get a bit of helpful context. It's going to help you to know who Jeroboam is. So he's quite a key figure in this story. Okay, Jeroboam is a guy who uh, lived in the reign of of Rehoboam's father, Solomon. Solomon was also a guy who messed up pretty big. When Solomon messed up, God came to this guy, Jeroboam, through a prophet of his and gave him a prophecy. And he said, I'm going to tear the kingdom from the son of Solomon. I'm going to give you 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jeroboam's had this prophecy. He's got this, this kind of... Uh, destiny, the sense of destiny. He, he's going to be someone important. But Solomon finds out and he sends him off into Egypt. Well, tries to kill him, actually. And Jeroboam runs away to Egypt. And we find out here, when Jeroboam finds out Solomon's dead, then he returns. So something's brewing. Something's, uh, there's trouble afoot. Let's have a look what happens. Verse 3. And they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, that's Rehoboam, said to them, come to me again in three days. So the people went away. So this is, Rehoboam hasn't even finished his coronation ceremony. He hasn't even got his feet under the desk of his uh, office back in Jerusalem. And he's being tested. This is like really early days, and there's, and there's tension. Jeroboam has had this prophecy. He comes back and he kind of gives Rehoboam a test. He says, your father worked us, the people, poor people, quite hard. And we think it's time you lightened up a bit. Gave us a few more days off, gave, increased our benefits, uh, shorter working hours, we think it's about time. If you do, we're happy to work for you. The underlying threat is, if you don't, then we're off. It's a big test. Jeroboam is the key figure. He's, Jeroboam is to Rehoboam as kind of Boris Johnson is to Theresa May. Okay, he's got an idea, he wants power, and he's prepared to divide the kingdom to get it. He wants to be in charge, and he won't stop at anything to, to, to try and make it happen. So Rehoboam says, okay, come again in three days, and the tension starts building. He goes away, he sleeps. He goes away, he sleeps again. And let's find out what he does. Verse 6, Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you will be good to this people and please them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, "Thus shall you speak to the people who said to you, "Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus, you, thus shall you say to them, "My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs." And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions." So Rehoboam goes to the old guys first where there's age and where there's wisdom, the guys who have been around the block and they've seen it all before. And these guys are looking on at the situation. They know what's happening. They were there when Jeroboam had that prophecy and Solomon tried to kill him. They know what Jeroboam's trying to do. They advise him wisely. They say, give them what they want. You need this guy on side. But Rehoboam doesn't like it. He's seeing this as a threat to his authority. He's just become king and he doesn't want to let them boss him around at the start. So he goes to the young guys, the people who are saying what he wants to hear, and they say to him, Put your foot down. Stamp your authority. You can't let them tell you what to do at this stage. You're you're a new king. Show them who's boss. And you can feel the tension building, can't you? Three days later, what's going to happen? Which way is he going to go? Let's pick it up at verse, verse 12. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day, as the king said, come to me again on the third day. And the king answered them harshly. And forsaking the counsel of the old men, King Rehoboam spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to it. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by God, that the Lord might fulfill his word. So Rehoboam goes with the, the advice of his peers. He goes with the, the advice saying, put your foot down. He, he abandons the wisdom of the old men. He thinks he knows best. He thinks, I don't need to hear advice from old guys. I know how to run this kingdom. And it's a bit like, anyone ever seen a, a, a video of a demolition of a big tall building? The, the, the demolition goes, the, the, um, the, the explosives detonate, and it's almost like it happens in slow motion. The building kind of just crumbles bit by bit. That's kind of what we see in the rest of the passage. It's a bit like we're watching in slow motion, the kingdom just crumbling. Verse 16, And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Each of you to your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So all Israel went to their tents. It's kind of inevitable, isn't it? It's what Jeroboam wanted. It's what he was pushing for. Rehoboam falls for the trap. And it all happens. So Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. The kingdom is divided. And verse 19, Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. It's a huge, huge moment in the history of the nation of Israel. So we're fairly early in the story of this this nation. It's only been established as a kingdom with a king for 120 years. They've only had three kings. They reigned 40 years each. Saul started well, faded. David, great job. Conquered loads of uh, enemies and established the kingdom. Solomon ruled with wisdom and he, he, he established a reign of peace. He, he made Israel a great nation. 120 years to build to this position. And now it's just imploding. And there's a kind of a note of finality, isn't there, about that Verse 19. Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. There's north and there's south, and it's going to be like that for the rest of the Old Testament. This is it, and it's come to this. It's a massive moment. So I hope you can see, Rehoboam makes a bit of a mess of what he's been given. He inherits this amazing kingdom. Within a few days, it's divided and it's crumbling. That's the first mess he makes. The second mess he makes is possibly even worse. That's in chapter 12 verse 1. Before then we have chapter 11 and I'm not going to read all of chapter 11 um, because of time. I'll just summarise what happens for you. Basically it's kind of what happens next. So the the buildings come down, the dust has settled and Rehoboam sets about thinking, well what am I going to do now? I've only got two tribes left, where do I go from here? His first idea is get a big army and go and try and fight them but God says no. He stops him, sends a message to, to him by a prophet saying, this is from me, don't fight. So he doesn't. He retreats and then just instead builds up his cities in Judah and Benjamin. That's the first heading you can see there in chapter 11. Rehoboam secures his kingdom. The second heading, second thing that happens is the priests and the Levites who were in the northern kingdom then come to the south. Jeroboam has set up kind of idol worship. The priests and Levites, their job is to help true worship in the temple. They're kind of out of a job. So they come south to Rehoboam. And they bring a load of people with them. And it says that Rehoboam's kingdom was strengthened by them. And then the third kind of scene in this little chapter is there Rehoboam's family. He, he then kind of plays family politics. He has a load of sons. I think it's like 28 sons. And he, he puts them in the different cities around his kingdom to strengthen them. So he's kind of playing the family politics. And the text actually says he's doing, he, he's doing a wise thing here. He, he's a wise king. Now he's lived under He's watched his father Solomon reign, probably the wisest man on earth. I'd be surprised if he hadn't picked up something along the way. But I want us to notice just uh, two verses before we dive into chapter 12 and, and keep going. Because I think these verses, just to pick out a couple from chapter 11, are important for what comes next. As verse 16 and 17. Have a look down in your Bible there on page 367 at the top of the page. It says, about the priests and Levites have come to Jerusalem. And it says, and those who had set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel came after them. From all the tribes of Israel to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord the God of their fathers. They strengthened the kingdom of Judah. And for three years they made Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, secure. For they walked for three years in the way of David and Solomon. So notice that, who strengthens the kingdom? Rehoboam is acting wisely, but the text says, who is it that strengthens the kingdom of Judah and makes Rehoboam walk securely? It's the people who have come to Jerusalem who seek God. It's people who are passionate for God, who have a heart after God, who actually helped Rehoboam to rule securely, it's it's down to them. And I think it's important that we notice that, because that sets up what happens next in chapter 12, verse 1. And this is where Rehoboam really makes a proper mess of things. Chapter 12, verse 1. When the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. So he's got physical security, he's established his kingdom, he's ruled with some wisdom... And I think what's going on is he's thinking, yeah, I've done a good job here. I've ruled well. I had a good father, learned from the best. I know how to do kingdom management. I know how to, to do family politics. And he thinks, I don't need God. And when he does that, he abandons God. And then what happens next is possibly even more disastrous than what's just happened. Verses 2 to 4 In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem with 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen. And the people were without number who came with him from Egypt, Libyans, Sukim, and Ethiopians. And he took the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem. Now, this is really serious. This guy, Shishak, from Egypt, he's got serious muscle. Egypt was one of the superpowers of the day. It's a bit like... Uh, America, amassing all their military might and coming to invade the southwest of England. there's There's no contest. And Rehoboam has brought this on himself by abandoning God. This is serious. So what do they do? The princes, Rehoboam's sons who are in the cities do the only thing they can think of and they run away. They retreat. They go back to Jerusalem and they hide. And Shishak comes and he advances and he takes town by town, fortified city by fortified city, until he's at Jerusalem. And then, the real sucker punch. The prophet comes, the prophet of God comes to Jerusalem and gives them this message. And this would have chilled their hearts. Verse 5. Then Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam and the princes of Judah, who had gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak, and said to them, Thus says the Lord, you abandoned me. So I have abandoned you to the hand of Shishak. It's a total mess. First of all, you had this internal collapse, this division within Israel, but now you've got this, this invasion of a foreign power. And this kingdom of Israel, which took 120 years to build, looks like it's going to be wiped out, completely gone in five. Five years. Really? 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 I think, hopefully, you can see Rehoboam messed up. Rehoboam didn't do a great job of his kingdom. And hopefully, as we've gone through this uh, text, this narrative, you have begin to notice why you think he might have done it. As we've lifted the lid and seen under the bonnet, well, why is it that Rehoboam acts the way he does? I think you can answer that question in one word. Pride. He does it because of pride. He thinks, I can do this. He thinks, I'm okay on my own. He thinks, I don't need God. It's pride. He thought he knew best. He didn't need to take the advice of the old men. He took credit for what God had done in the kingdom. And the result was disaster. It's a mess. Now, it's easy to judge Rehoboam, I think, from a distance and say, yeah, he was prideful, he messed up. But actually, I think we're more like Rehoboam than we think. I wonder if you've ever found it hard to take advice. Anyone ever had that? I was uh, having lunch fairly recently with a good friend of mine um, and I was talking to him about a, a big decision that we've got coming up and um, I was running it past him and I, I even said to him, "You know, any, have you got any thoughts, any input? And he gave me some thoughts and he said, um, I'd encourage you if you do take this course of action to think this through. And if he said it, something inside me went, you can't say that to me. <laughs> I don't want to hear your advice. I'd ask, I'd ask him for advice. But there's something in me that goes, actually I'm okay, I'm okay on my own, I can, I can manage this. I I can do it. I I can do it. Ever had that? Find it hard to take advice? Uh, I find for me that area this uh, rears its ugly head is when I'm behind the steering wheel of my car. When I'm driving, uh, everyone has their own way of driving. Uh, I have my own way of driving, and I'm perfectly happy with it. Um, I feel like I'm always in control of my vehicle. Um, I'm not perfect, I admit that. And occasionally my imperfections, I admit, need a little bit of correction, perhaps. A little bit of a loving, gentle uh, rebuke. Uh, Now, it's easy for me to say that standing from the front, that I'm I'm an imperfect driver, but somehow when I'm behind the wheel of the car and I do something that needs, let's say, a little bit of a gentle correction, I don't want to hear it. I'm I'm fine. I knew exactly what I was doing. That pedestrian that dove out of the way as I approached the crossing knew that I was about to stop. I'm in control. I I don't want to hear advice. I don't want to hear it. I'm okay on my own. It's that pride thing, isn't it, that rises up in us. I'm okay. I can handle it. Or maybe you feel the opposite to that. Maybe you're not the kind of person who is really confident in your own abilities. Maybe you're the kind of person who is actually very unconfident in your abilities. And maybe you look around, rather than thinking, I'm better than others, you think, I'm worse than others. I don't fit in here. How could I ever compete? And you feel like you need help with everything. Maybe that's where you're at. But I think there can be a kind of reverse pride in that situation as well, because you can end up thinking, I should be better than this. I should be able to fix myself and therefore I'm not going to reach out for help. I'm going to keep people at arm's length. It's the same thing motivating it. It's still pride. It's still thinking I should be better than this. I'm okay on my own. But it's not reaching out. The other way pride I think shows itself Rhea Bohm, not just thinking he knows best but it's taking credit isn't it for what God does. So God strengthens him. God brings people to the kingdom who strengthen his kingdom and he says great. Good old me. Well done me. And I think we can do the same thing. We're just the same. God does something in our life and we think, well done me. Good job. Now sometimes it's kind of obviously a God thing that he does and when you take credit for it it's pretty obvious that you shouldn't be and you feel bad. So like you're praying for a long time for something. You're praying for perhaps a new job and it's something you've been wanting for ages and and something comes along out of nowhere just lands on your lap. It's obviously a God thing. Or I don't know, your child hasn't been sleeping for weeks, and you pray, you're kind of getting to your wits end, and you're praying, God, please, just one night of sleep, and it happens, just when you need it most. Or you're kind of, you're, let's say you're preparing a lesson for the kids' work at church, and it's Saturday evening, and you've got no ideas, and you're thinking, God, I need your help here, and you pray, and an idea just pops into your head, out of nowhere. And it's so obviously a God thing, that if you take credit for it, you kind of feel bad doing it. But there are some times when it's not so obviously a God thing, and it feels more like a me thing. Perhaps you get that promotion at work and you've worked hard for it. And you feel like you deserve it. Or you get the new job and you haven't actually prayed about it. And you think, yeah, that was me. Or you've been training your child to, to behave and table manners. And you go to someone's house from here and they behave well. And you think, yeah, good old me. I did it. You haven't prayed about it. So you take credit. Or let's say with a kids' lesson, you've planned it all week. And you've looked at your resources, and you've, you've been really in the zone, and it goes really well, and you think, yeah, that was me. When it's not so obviously a God thing, we so easily take credit, don't we? But actually, isn't everything we have from God? Isn't everything we have his work in our lives? We wouldn't be us if it wasn't God who made us, us. He gives us our personalities. He gives us our gifts. He gives us our, our place in the world, our family, our, our opportunities. He gives us everything. How can we take credit for it? We're a lot more like Rehoboam than we think. For us, however, the consequences of our pride are different from Rehoboam. So we don't have to fear uh, an Egyptian army invading our house anytime soon. But the principle that was working for Rehoboam is the same. Pride leads to disaster. It happened for him and it happens for us. Pride in our lives leads to disaster too. I think it happens on on different levels. So I think it leads to a mess of human relationships. When we're proud, when we hold people at arm's length, when we say, I don't need you, it creates distance. It's very hard to have any kind of close relationship with someone who's defensive as soon as they're challenged, isn't it? Very hard to be close to that kind of person. I think pride messes up human relationships, but also I think it messes up and causes damage to our relationship with God. And perhaps that's Far more significant. See, pride in our relationship with God is more than just inconvenient. It's actually terribly dangerous. Holding a person at arm's length is one thing. Holding the God who made us and created us and loves us at arm's length is another thing completely. It was, it was pride that caused God to throw Adam and Eve from the garden, them saying, I want to be like God. It's, it's pride that caused God to put the curse of death on humanity. God actually says a number of times in the Bible, he opposes the proud. Just let that sink in. God opposes the the proud. And ultimately, those who turn their back on God and say to God, I don't need you, continually, he will leave. Those who abandon him, he will abandon to their choice, to an eternity um, lost without him. And you might say, well, isn't that a bit harsh? How can God... Do that. How can God oppose the proud? Doesn't that make him sound a little bit cruel? Doesn't that make him sound a bit proud himself, like he's in some kind of competition with us? Well, no. We only think that when we forget why God opposes pride. God opposes pride because it disrupts his purpose. The reason he created us, for a relationship with him. And our pride gets in the way of that relationship. It puts a big barrier in the way. And he loves humanity too much to allow that to continue. Just like a good parent will discipline their child if they say, no, I don't want to be your child anymore and leave the house when they're at primary school, they're going, to, they're going to discipline them and bring them back because they love them too much to allow that to continue. God opposes the proud. And pride leads to disaster. But thankfully, that's not the end. Because look at what happens next. You'll noticed I stopped reading in the middle of our passage and thankfully there's an ending Let's pick up what happens from verse 6. The Rehoboam and his sons are huddled in Jerusalem. They're scared of what's going to happen. The king of Egypt is on their doorstep. Verse 6, Then the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, The Lord is righteous. And when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah. They have humbled themselves. I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance. And my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Nevertheless, they shall be my servants to him, that they may know my service and the service of the kingdom of the countries. And then Shishak comes and he does invade and he does take away a lot of good stuff from the temple and he does ransack, but he doesn't completely destroy them. God spares them. Anyone notice the repeated word in that little chunk I read? The repeated phrase? They humbled themselves. They have humbled themselves. And therefore, I'm going to grant them deliverance. It comes again in verse 12. He humbled himself. The wrath of God turned from him. The writer's making a point. He's saying, remember that promise in chapter 7, verse 14? When you humble yourself, I'll turn, I'll heal you, and I'll I'll forgive you. That's what's happening here. Rehoboam is humbling himself. And what does God do? He holds back. He holds back from the judgment that he was planning. And just look at how this humility is defined. Look at verse 6. How is it defined? When they humbled themselves, what they said was, the Lord is righteous. It's basically saying, God, you're right and I'm not. You're in the right and I'm in the wrong. I've got it wrong. I've been going my own way and I'm sorry. It's admitting, it's coming clean. It's confessing. And that's what God responds to. Now, Rehoboam had been foolish. He made a mess of his kingdom. He didn't deserve this. But notice, even during the invasion, even Shishak's on his doorstep, even then, it's not too late. It's not too late for him to cry out and for God to respond and to, to relent and to hold back from the punishment. And Amazingly, we, we read later in the passage, Rehoboam reigns for 12 more years. 17 years in total after the mess he made at the start of it. It's just God's kindness. Humility makes all the difference. Pride leads to disaster, but humility makes all the difference. And that's the answer to the what now question. When you mess up, what now? And the answer is, humble yourself. Again, the the, the situation with us in Rehoboam is different, but the principle is the same. Humility makes all the difference in our lives too. And it works on both levels, in human relationships and in our relationship with God. So when we mess up, when we experience that 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 um, situation where we're defensive and we're holding someone back and we're saying I don't need you, when when we see that pride in our hearts and it causes the mess that we experience in our relationships, it makes all the difference when we come clean, when we say I'm sorry. It changes everything. I don't know if you noticed, it's quite hard to say sorry well. You don't notice that? It's very easy to say I'm sorry, but, but if there's a but in the sorry, it's not a sorry. It's hard to say sorry well. We try and uh, teach our kids to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me. And when you say the whole thing, it suddenly makes it see- seem a lot more real, doesn't it? Um, it's like this in the car, right? So I, I go around a corner too quickly, I slow down a little bit too, too late for the pedestrian crossing, and I say, I can say I'm sorry, and I can say it with a tone of voice, which means I'm not really sorry, I still think I was right. I can even go a step further and say, I'm sorry that I didn't, uh, didn't drive perfectly. I can still be thinking, there's distance. But when I say, I'm sorry I was proud how I responded to you, oh, wow, that changes the conversation, doesn't it? I'm sorry I was proud. Suddenly there's closeness, suddenly there's intimacy, suddenly there's, okay, I, I want to have a relationship with you again. It makes all the difference. It works horizontally, but I think the main thing here is it works vertically, vertically as well in our relationship with God, the the pride that we naturally put between us and God, when we humble ourselves, incredibly, God says, I'll forgive you. Incredibly, God says, although I oppose the proud, I give grace to the humble. God is waiting, God is ready to forgive. Now, it's easy to say that humility makes the difference, that we should say sorry and come clean and confess. It's easy to say that stuff, But in reality, humility is scary. Humility needs a safe place. You need to know the person that you're apologizing to is trustworthy, that they can take what you're saying. How can I be sure the person will forgive me? How can I be sure God will forgive me? Well, Rehoboam had the promise of chapter 7, verse 14. Rehoboam had the promise of God saying, if you turn, if you humble yourself, then I'll forgive. And that was enough for Rehoboam. But for us how much more do we have? How much more do we have this side of the cross? This side of Jesus coming to take the pride, the punishment for the pride that we deserve. This side of the cross, the clearest expression of God's commitment to forgive, God's commitment to draw near. God's commitment to get out of the way anything that is in the way between us and a close relationship with him. God's commitment to, to deal with the distance that our pride causes, he's dealt with it. The curse that he placed over our pride, the curse of death, he took the curse on himself at the cross. We see the clearest uh, uh, vision there of God's God's commitment to, to win us back, to win our hearts back. And that's why we can humble ourselves. It's the ultimate safe place, isn't it? At the cross, our sin is already dealt with. And he welcomes us with open arms. So I think I think looking at Rehoboam's life, there's a warning for us here and we need to be careful with that. And there's also an encouragement. I think there's a warning that pride does lead to disaster. It does lead to a mess. It does lead to damage, not only in our relationships with each other, but our relationship with God. And there's certainly a warning. If, if you're not a Christian and you haven't, you're not trusting in the cross, you're not trusting in God's way of dealing with your pride, then God ultimately will give you what you're asking for. He will give you eternal distance from him and that is a terrible, terrible thing. So there's a warning here but there's also an encouragement that the death of Jesus is for you and when you humble yourself before him he will forgive you, he will lift you up. But I think the warning is not just for those who aren't Christians it's for those who are Christians too that we're not immune. We're not immune from slipping back into pride. We're not immune from slipping back into I can handle this. I'm responsible for my life. I don't need you. And I think the the, the challenge for us is when we see that in our lives, let's let's run to the cross. Let's just confess as soon as possible. Let's believe the truth that there is is blessedness, there is joy in, in confession when God forgives our sins. Let's run back to the cross and find joy there as we see God forgiving our pride, as we see God forgiving our sins, as we see God's commitment to draw near to us. If we want to be ignited as a church, if we want to be set on fire, then this kind of humility, this kind of, it's about God, it's not me, it has to mark us. That, that moment where we say, God, you're right, and I'm not. So let's, let's, let's discern pride in ourselves. Let's discern it, and when we do, let's confess it. Let's go to the cross, and let's find the joy and freedom that comes from knowing that we're forgiven.